Listener discretion is advised. This episode features discussions of abuse, sexual assault, traumatic situations, medical cruelty, and suicide. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It's a peculiar truism that ignorance is bliss. Because what if the truth that we've agreed to overlook is horrible, evil? Ignoring it might make us feel better temporarily, but the truth always surfaces. And when it does, the weight of the facts can be too great to bear. So great that we'll stop at nothing to protect the soothing lie. This was the case for Dr. Harry Bailey, an Australian psychiatrist whose treatment methods thrived on ignorance. But when lives were lost and the inquests came, reality hit, shattering his blissful illusion. This is Medical Murders, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every year, thousands of medical students take the Hippocratic Oath. It boils down to do no harm. But a closer look reveals a phrase much more interesting. I must not play at God. However, some doctors break that oath. They choose to play God with their patients, deciding who lives and who dies. Each week on Medical Murders, we'll investigate these doctors, nurses, and medical professionals. We'll explore the specifics of how medical killers operate, not just on their patients, but within their own minds, examining the psychology and neurology behind heartless medical killers. I'm Alastair Murden, and I'm joined by Dr. David Kipper, MD. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Kipper, and I'm here to offer Alistair some medical insight into our concluding episode of Dr. Harry Bailey, a doctor who ironically ended up getting a very bad taste of his own very bad medicine. You can find episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This is our second episode on Dr. Harry Bailey, a psychiatrist connected to the deaths of at least 24 patients in Sydney, Australia during the 1960s and 70s. Last week, we tracked Bailey's journey into psychiatry and his rise to a key role in public health research. But as his greed got the better of him, Bailey fell out of favor with officials. Today, we'll pick up with Bailey's efforts to regain influence in experimental brain therapies. We'll also track the horrific tragedies that occurred at Chelmsford Private Hospital, a facility that once acted as Bailey's playground, only to become his prison. All this and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. In October of 1960, 38-year-old Dr. Harry Bailey went to the press with a scandal. The New South Wales Public Service Board had failed to address his complaints about the conditions at Callan Park Psychiatric Hospital, and the public deserved to know. 
but his plan backfired. By the end of 1961, Bailey had been forced to resign from his position as superintendent. To many of the hospital staff, the news was a relief. They were under no impression that Bailey had ever really cared about them or the patients at Callum Park. He may have outed the poor conditions to authorities, but it had likely been with the intent of filling his own pockets. This much became clear when the findings from an inquiry into the hospital were announced in November 1961. Apparently, Bailey had spent £600 on his own office. Meanwhile, bathrooms at Callum Park weren't up to code. Ward 7 was described as being in deplorable condition. Ultimately, however, it was his role as a whistleblower that forced him out of his lavishly renovated residence on the facility's grounds. But that wasn't all he had to surrender after his political blunder. In his most recent professional post, Bailey had assumed total jurisdiction over the psychiatric hospital. He oversaw an entire staff and consulted on treatment plans. And he'd achieved it after less than 10 years researching the field. Now, viewed as a traitor by the many who had helped him rise the ranks, Bailey was left to find work without their favoritism. The Public Service Board extended an olive branch and told Bailey he could work at a country hospital. But his pride was too great. He turned away from the spotlight and took up a private practice in Sydney where he could run things unimpeded. Publicly funded hospitals are governed by the state, and with this comes more bureaucratic oversight. Bailey might have avoided working at a setting like this because he was so intent on employing his own treatment methods as opposed to more standard interventions of the time. Private practices offer doctors unique autonomy and give them complete control over a patient's care without hospital direction or procedure. Bailey clearly wasn't the kind of guy who stuck to the status quo in terms of medical opinions or therapies, so it makes a lot of sense that he wanted to work on his own. When he transitioned into his own private practice, he was likely eager to step away from the bureaucratic constraints that had plagued his final months at Callum Park. Not to mention, Bailey had major popularity to leverage. While officials may have turned their backs on him, the public seemed to view Bailey as a martyr for mental health. They didn't know how much of the hospital's budget Bailey had spent on himself. They simply saw him as someone concerned about a progressive cause, a man who had gone out of his way to improve patient care. With this perception, Bailey found it easy to attract new clients. Unfortunately, his lifestyle as a private practitioner didn't exactly live up to Bailey's sense of self-importance. He'd grown used to running things with a staff he could direct. Now, he simply managed himself and his patients. There was no one he could boss around. Because life as a private practitioner is associated with a lack of engagement with hospital hierarchies, Bailey was more or less left to his own devices. He'd have been able to set his own fees, take on or refuse any patient he wished, and would virtually have no immediate oversight in regard to his care. On the downside, though, like you said, Alistair, he wouldn't have had the same help when it came to staff, and this lack of institutional protection would have burdened Bailey with significant medical legal liability. Even worse, Bailey was likely unable to conduct the major brain procedures and controversial therapies he'd spent years researching. Before long, Bailey itched for his own reclamation, something to restore his sense of importance. At some point in 1962, Bailey reached out to Dr. John Dowling, a respected neurosurgeon who had worked with him years prior. Like Bailey, Dowling apparently believed that brain surgery was a solution for psychiatric ailments. The treatment they'd soon be attempting to master was none other 
than a cingulotractotomy. According to a 1973 report that the two published in tandem with their colleague Evan Davies, cingulotractotomy consists of placing discrete bilateral surgical lesions in the anterior cingulate gyri and is now a well-established procedure for the treatment of severe intractable affective illness. In some ways, the procedure was similar to a lobotomy. As we've discussed in past episodes, lobotomies involve the severing and cutting of connective tissues with the prefrontal cortex via the eye sockets or holes that were drilled into the patient's skull. This part of the brain controls executive functions like planning and goal setting, decision making, personality, and is linked to memory, language, and speech. Bailey and Dowling's operation was originally conceived as an alternative to the lobotomy in hopes that it would attack mental illness without the negative long-term side effects. And like you said, Alistair, an iteration of this procedure is still used today to treat severe depression and OCD. The anterior cingulate gyri are part of the limbic system, which largely regulates our emotions, our ability to form memories, and even our sense of smell. While many people report positive effects from the cingulotractotomy or bilateral cingulotomy, negative side effects that have been reported include problems with memory and feelings of apathy. Despite this surgery being less invasive than the lobotomy, the manipulation of the limbic system here was definitely risky and relatively unproven at the time. But Bailey had other objectives beyond just brain surgery. Inspired by the research of Dr. William Sargent, who he had visited on his world tour, Bailey was eager to try out his own version of deep sleep therapy, or DST. During this treatment, patients were heavily sedated for long periods of time with the intention of resetting their brain. When explaining it to patients, Bailey said, just as a good sleep enables the body to wake up refreshed, so a good sleep will enable the brain to wake up refreshed. It's unclear how much scientific evidence Bailey had to back up his claim, but DST supposedly made patients more compliant to electroconvulsive therapy. He'd explored DST while directing the Cerebral Surgery Research Unit, but he never really gained the necessary hands-on fieldwork. As director of the unit, he was often instructing doctors, not delivering the treatment. Still, Bailey was confident in his own ability to administer many of these highly experimental methods on patients. He soon found a hospital that would allow him to perform the treatments alongside Dr. John Dowling. And while Dowling was certainly more versed in brain surgery, he allegedly had little say in how any given patient was treated. He just came in, performed the operations, and left. Some patients don't even remember meeting Dowling. It seems keeping certain details ambiguous was a tactic Bailey used often. When he made his arrangement to conduct therapies at St. Anne's private hospital, he had no intention of telling the facility's owner, matron Claire Ray, what he was doing. And this was dangerous. The matron was responsible for overseeing the nursing staff. If she didn't know what was going on, she couldn't tell the staff how to care for Bailey's clients. When his first patients received treatments, matron Claire Ray wasn't even in the country. When she returned from her trip, the matron was appalled to find patients asleep for days on end. Worried that her nurses didn't have the necessary qualifications to support the risky treatments, Matron Ray puzzled over how she could stop Bailey. Of course, this was no simple task. Matron Ray was smart, though. As a nurse, she knew she couldn't defy the medical hierarchy and question a physician about his methods. She had to smoke him out of the hospital instead make him think leaving was his own idea. So whenever Bailey called to schedule a patient procedure, Matron Ray said there were no beds available. Day in 
and day out, Matron Ray stonewalled Bailey to keep his patients off her premises. By the spring of 1963, Bailey deemed the facility incapable of supporting his needs. If he couldn't carry out the procedures he wanted to on the timeline he wanted, he simply couldn't proceed at St. Anne's. Luckily for him, one of the hospital's nurses, Betty Shea, found this troubling. She saw Bailey as a hero in the field of psychiatry. He had to continue his work. Desperate to find somewhere Bailey could practice, Betty Shea called around, looking for a facility that might be open to controversial treatment methods. Weeks later, she had good news. A 15-bed cottage hospital in a nearby suburb was willing to welcome Bailey. It was called Chelmsford Private Hospital, and it was hemorrhaging cash. Desperate, Chelmsford's matron extended an invitation to Bailey, hoping he'd bring in a profitable slew of patients. Bailey didn't hesitate. Coming up, Bailey embarks on his most vicious venture yet. What could be more shocking than uncovering the deep, dark secrets behind history's biggest stories? Realizing that everything you thought was true was a lie. Hi, it's Carter from the ParCast series, Conspiracy Theories. Every Monday and Wednesday, take a closer look at the blurred line between fact and fiction and discover that there may be more to the so-called truth than you think. From the government's link to Bigfoot and the otherworldly secrets of the Vatican to the Grateful Dead's role in the spread of LSD and more. On Conspiracy Theories, we leave no stone unturned and no skeptic unheard. Some may just be outlandish claims. Others may make you rethink everything. Follow the Spotify original from ParCast, Conspiracy Theories. Listen free only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. At the start of 1963, 40-year-old Dr. Harry Bailey began promoting his services for the mentally ill at Chelmsford. The facility housed a meager 15 beds and had only been operating for a few months. But Bailey was determined to pack the place with patients who'd let him experiment. As chief psychiatrist and director of the Deep Sleep Therapy Ward, Bailey could do exactly this, and without oversight too. By mid-1963, he had welcomed one of his first patients to Chelmsford, 17-year-old Julie Myers. Records indicate that Julie suffered from premenstrual tension, or what is today referred to as PMS. Under the urging of her father, she was forced to see Bailey. Misdiagnosis has plagued women's health for centuries, and it's possible that Julie was experiencing something closer to PMDD, or premenstrual dysphoric disorder. This is ultimately a more severe form of PMS, and it can cause a host of psychological and physical symptoms that typically start a week before menstruation and end a few days into the period. Like PMS, we see the typical gastrointestinal symptoms like cramping and bloating with PMDD, but there's also a greater presence of strange outlying symptoms like skin, vascular, and even respiratory problems. In regard to Julie's temperament, the hormone changes that occur during PMDD have been known to create deficits in serotonin, 
This could have been particularly difficult for Julie, given her age, but luckily today, treatment options are more sensical and robust. These can include stress management therapies, diet changes and regular exercise, birth control pills, and SSRI medications that augment the brain's levels of serotonin. Unfortunately for Julie, her struggles in the 1960s were perceived purely as psychological rather than the result of hormonal shifts. Julie's parents didn't know it, but bringing their daughter to Bailey was the worst step they could have taken for her health. According to John O'Neill and Robert Haupt of the Sydney Morning Herald, Julie's mother claimed that her daughter was administered both electroconvulsive and deep sleep therapies without her consent. If Julie was like the majority of Bailey's patients, she was likely given a barbiturate cocktail for sedation prior to undergoing electric shock to control seizures and muscle spasms. But as authors Brian Bromberger and Janet Fife Yeomans have noted, Bailey decided that any patient who was deeply sedated did not need an anesthetic. Yet on nearly every recorded occasion, Bailey charged patients' insurance companies for both ECT and anesthetic. It's another indication of his tendency to bend the rules when it suited him. During Julie's treatment, she was likely held in a drug-induced coma, or what Bailey called a holiday for the brain. Afterward, he expected mental functions to improve. But Julie was listless. While Bailey noted that a lack of energy and increased irritability were known to occur in the initial weeks after treatment, he believed these were only temporary symptoms. However, Julie's case paints a different picture. After she was released from the hospital, Julie grew increasingly depressed. Bailey seemed to believe Julie was hopeless. She needed more counseling to address the obsessional behavior she'd likely inherited from her father. He continued visiting her at home, oddly, when her parents were not around. Julie's mother later said, that Bailey helped himself to the family's pharmaceutical supplies. When questioned, he reacted with anger and entitlement. But no matter what they thought of Bailey, Julie's parents were desperate. They still thought he could help their daughter, so apparently they allowed Julie to continue receiving psychiatric advice from Bailey. Until October of 1963. Julie's mother suspects that on that day, her daughter begged for Bailey's help only to be denied. In the end, Julie took her own life. It was only the first tragedy of many connected to Chelmsford and its chief psychiatrist. But Bailey didn't stop his treatment methods. And the more patients that entered his deep sleep ward, the more often dangerous complications emerged. Chief among them were bladder issues and infections. Urinary retention is common when someone's heavily sedated, and this is because sedative drugs induce paralysis in the smooth muscles of the urinary tract, inhibiting the bladder from contracting and emptying. Catheters can be a solution to draining some of this excess urine, but any insertion of a foreign body can cause tissue trauma and has the potential to carry infectious bacteria. Let's just say it wouldn't have been an ideal solution. This initial treatment model just seemed to ignore the obvious fact that patients would regularly need to alleviate themselves. Though Chelmsford nurses did attempt to use catheters to solve this problem, they caused issues of their own. Bacteria often traveled along the device and into the urethra and bladder, causing infection. And when patients simply relieved themselves while unconscious in their own beds, it wasn't uncommon for them to sit in their own waste for several hours until they were cleaned. So the entire DST ward constantly smelled of urine. But perhaps most dangerous of all 
were the low blood oxygen and overdose risks that came with prolonged sedation. In July 1964, over a year after Bailey became chief psychiatrist at Chelmsford, two of his patients died. The first was Muriel Kell, a 53-year-old woman suffering from menopausal depression. While asleep and heavily drugged, Muriel displayed cyanosis caused by poorly oxygenated blood. Blood carries oxygen to the cells throughout our bodies to keep us healthy. When not enough oxygen gets delivered, we can experience a wide variety of health problems. Cyanosis leads ultimately to a blue discoloration of the skin that transitions from an initial red coloring caused by poor circulation and depleted blood oxygen. It happens because healthy red blood cells literally turn a bluish color when they lose their oxygen, and this becomes visible in the skin. Muriel's prolonged sedation would have caused her blood to stagnate and would have depressed and changed her respiratory cycle, leaving her blood oxygen level compromised. Thankfully, Muriel didn't experience any uncomfortable onset here, but that unfortunately didn't change her luck. Muriel succumbed to her cyanosis, becoming the first patient whose death could be explicitly linked to Bailey's deep sleep therapy methods. Just four days later, 28-year-old Antonios Higis, a patient suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder, was put under deep sleep therapy and never woke up. He'd been sedated too heavily. Still, it seems Bailey failed to reduce his dosage recommendations. Within a matter of months, three more patients died under Bailey's regimen. By this point, he had to have known his treatment was causing harm, but it appears that Bailey was more keen on carrying out his operations than taking accountability. When the head nurse attempted to report the circumstances surrounding a patient's death that December, Bailey berated her. He ripped the note from the patient record and substituted new information, implying that the patient's airway had been checked and that there was no evidence she'd been over-sedated. He further stated that the woman died from a coronary occlusion and heavily suggested that he had been present at the time of her death. These were outright lies. Lies that no one questioned. Until the death of 23-year-old Ronald Graham Carter on May 3rd, 1967. For the first time, this brought Bailey's tactics into the spotlight. Not only was Carter young, his wife had questioned Bailey's treatments from the outset. She was astonished by her husband's appearance after entering Bailey's care. Worried, she demanded Bailey stop. But instead, he assured her that her husband would be fine and ready to leave the hospital 48 hours later. Instead, Carter's sedative dosage was doubled a day later. 24 hours after that, he passed. Possibly due to the outspokenness of Carter's widow, authorities examined the events that led to his death more closely than Bailey's other deceased patients. And when an inquest was performed in September, the specifics of Bailey's methods were finally revealed. According to that report, Bailey revealed that his patients were given barbiturates to induce sleep, fed through a nasal tube, and intermittently given electrotherapy as they dozed. And as unpleasant as that sounds, that wasn't the worst of it. Bailey admitted that he would keep patients unconscious for approximately 23 and a half hours a day. The amount of time Bailey kept his patients under is shocking, dangerous, and frankly abhorrent. Aside from death due to respiratory failure, keeping a patient sedated on a mix of barbiturates for such a long time increases the likelihood of complications and overdose. 
As we already know, Alistair, deep, prolonged sedation can lead to urinary tract and bladder infections from the associated urinary retention. On top of this, though, it may also cause upsets in fluid and nutritional balances, bed sores, blood clots, and can tax other organ systems due to the poor blood and oxygen circulation. Given what we now know about mental health, this sort of treatment design doesn't make any sense from a physiological perspective or from any other perspective. Bailey seemed to think that humans were something like machines and that turning them off and on again would yield some miraculous result. It really was nonsense, and it's a wonder that he was able to continue practicing. Ultimately, the coroner did not recommend Bailey be punished. It was largely the nurse's responsibility to administer medication. While Carter may have been given too high a dose, Bailey's general recommendations were for a person of average size and health. Apparently, Carter did not fit into that category, and the nurses didn't account for that. Bailey may have been off the hook for Carter's death, but he wasn't completely in the clear. In 1968, Chelmsford's license needed to be renewed. When a health department official came to the facility, she quickly learned that Bailey wasn't signing off on each patient's drug regime, and the blanket dosage guides wouldn't cut it. So Bailey created a drug sheet that left a space for him to sign approval at the bottom, Unfortunately, these were entirely for show, a way to appease the health department if they dared check on him again. In reality, since Bailey kept odd hours at the hospital and maintained no regular schedule, he rarely provided oversight before medicines were administered. And when Chelmsford expanded, bringing on more doctors, Bailey seemed nervous about sharing his methods with them. He was secretive cagey, perhaps to avoid any condemnation. Perhaps looking to restore his privacy, Bailey considered opening an entirely new facility called Mandela. In July of 1971, Bailey told a health official that it would be set up and running within three months. But this was an idealistic goal. While he did buy an old, decrepit house in which to build, he had no real financial plans to proceed with it. But the property likely came to serve him in other ways. Bailey was still married, but he started spending more and more time away from home. Mrs. Bailey initially attributed this to his busy work life. In reality, Bailey had sparked up an affair with his office manager at Chelmsford, Jan Allen. It's possible the Mandela home gave them a place to ravage one another in a more private setting, and Bailey seemed to have no moral issue with cheating on his wife. But his affair with Jan Allen was only the tip of the iceberg. Bailey made repeated sexual advances on his female patients. Often, he would diagnose their chronic depression as sex-related and ask, how are things in the fornication department? Survivors of Bailey's advances said that he presented himself as the remedy to all sexual inhibition, and that would cure them. Once he'd convinced them, Bailey used their bodies for sex, on the Chelmsford grounds, no less. Afterwards, he discarded them, leaving them more unstable than when they first came to him. Several even attempted suicide when Bailey rejected them. In every single one of these cases, Bailey failed to honor basic physician-patient ethics. Bailey's willingness to violate the physician-patient boundary and pursue sexual relationships with them reveals just how little regard he actually had for their mental well-being. These boundaries are so important because it's the only way to ensure ethical and impartial treatment. If emotions become involved, they tend to cloud perspectives. 
Furthermore, in a field like mental health, where many patients are already unstable and have difficulty with boundaries, these principles are especially imperative. If a doctor and patient were to develop feelings for one another, it'd be crucial for the doctor to terminate care and refer the patient elsewhere. Even in the 1960s, when ethical codes were still developing and doctors were less bound to good behavior, sex with a patient would have been a big no. Yet among all the missteps Bailey made out of lust, the worst was his involvement with a new woman. In the summer of 1972, Bailey had no idea he was about to make a match straight out of a nightmare. Coming up, Bailey's complicated personal life begins raising questions. Now, back to the story. In 1972, a new woman landed on 49-year-old Dr. Harry Bailey's radar. Though he couldn't have known it at the time, her arrival marked the true beginning of his fall from grace. By this point, over 10 patients had already died from his treatments. Rather than face the music, Bailey simply stood by the notion that his methods were generally successful. And a surprising amount of other people seemed to maintain this belief as well, including lawyers who hired Bailey for psychiatric assessments of their clients. This was precisely how Bailey met 23-year-old Sharon Hamilton. From the start, Sharon was never meant to be one of Bailey's patients. She was a small-time cabaret dancer, and her friends knew her as a generally stable person. One evening, however, while she was performing at a prison, Sharon was injured by one of the inmates during a choreographed attack scene. She walked away with cuts on her arm and neck and was soon the subject of national news reports. And she milked the event for all it was worth. She sued the New South Wales government for her physical and emotional injuries. To bolster the case, her attorney put her in touch with none other than Harry Bailey. To prove that Sharon had been negatively impacted by the event, Bailey needed to review her mental condition. Though Sharon saw her meeting with the psychiatrist as a mere formality, and a joke even, the encounter would define the rest of her life. Bailey agreed to help her win the legal case against the government. However, he also believed that Sharon would benefit from his treatment. This was odd to Sharon's friends, who noted that she hadn't been depressed. Sharon got hooked on barbiturates, seemingly prescribed to her by Bailey. This was completely out of character, given that Sharon never took pills prior, but it speaks to the power of Bailey's persuasion. Their budding affair might also explain why Sharon trusted Bailey so readily when he recommended she have a good rest and undergo deep sleep therapy. What came next was a trauma in its own right. On August 2nd, 1974, just two years after she'd first met Bailey, 25-year-old Sharon was admitted to Chelmsford. According to authors Brian Bromberger and Janet Fife Yeomans, who wrote extensively on the facility, the consequences of this treatment were drastic. Sharon lost almost 44 pounds and grew very weak as a result. In addition, Bailey isolated her from her friends and family, anyone who might protest against the help she was receiving. They also kept up their sexual relationship. Sharon spent the better part of two years at Chelmsford, and during that time, despite Bailey's manipulative behavior, she developed an unruly obsession for the doctor. The hospital staff grew wary of Sharon. She was always coming and going, treating the ward like her own personal motel, making a show of her affair with Bailey. 
Sometimes she had emotional outbursts in front of the entire hospital. We don't know if Sharon was still receiving deep sleep therapy treatment during this time, but she did continue to use barbiturates. It's been suggested that Bailey may have tried to break up with her at one point, but Sharon had no intention of letting go. And things only went from bad to worse. In December 1977, 55-year-old Bailey sexually propositioned another patient. Sharon ended up in a screaming match with the woman. But it seemed Sharon wanted to up the ante in her bizarre dynamic with Bailey. In July of 1977, Sharon told him she was pregnant. Bailey insisted she have an abortion. Sharon reluctantly consented. After that, Bailey seemed to abandon her. He was supposed to pick her up from the procedure, but he didn't show. After getting home on her own, Sharon was distraught. She called Bailey, demanding that he come over. When he arrived, the place was in shambles. Sharon was running around with a knife, clearly upset by what had just happened. Her neighbors heard that chaos and called the police, but Bailey dismissed them. He told them he was a doctor and Sharon was under his care. He eventually brought her back to Chelmsford and placed her under heavy sedation. When asked to give recommendations for Sharon's care, Bailey simply said that she was to be kept deeper. This turned out to be a poor choice. By that December, Sharon was receiving treatment for deep vein thrombosis. Deep vein thrombosis is a relatively common side effect of poorly managed sedation. This happens when blood clots form in the deep veins or those vessels that circulate in deeper tissues, as opposed to the superficial network of veins, which are the ones you can see under the skin. These clots normally develop in deep leg veins, and the danger with these is their ability to dislodge from within the vein and cause a life-threatening pulmonary embolism or stroke. This is a potentially fatal situation, but it seems like Bailey didn't care. It's like he just wanted Sharon out of his hair. Still, the worst was yet to come for Sharon. That winter, she finally left the hospital. She told a friend that she was done receiving Bailey's sedation treatments once and for all. But even though she wanted to stop receiving his medical care, she somehow still pined for him romantically. In February of 1978, Sharon joined Bailey, Jan Allen, and some of their other friends on a camping trip that erupted into chaos. A heated argument broke out between Sharon and Bailey, and it continued even once they returned. Things went sour fast. Days later, on February 16th, 1978, Sharon was found dead in her apartment from an overdose of tuanol. It was one of the primary drugs used in Bailey's treatment. Some even wondered whether or not Bailey had a hand in Sharon's end, given how volatile their relationship had become. But after two investigations, the final ruling was self-ingested overdose. Regardless, the whole fiasco seemed to set off a switch in Bailey. Sharon's sudden and bleak end had actually turned him quite mad. Desperate for connection, Bailey rushed to Jan Allen's side for comfort, but she had started dating another man. Bailey was relentless, trying to convince her to come back. When she continued to reject him, he was furious. He refused to write her a recommendation for a new job out of spite. And somehow, throughout all of this, Harry Bailey remained formally married, though separated, from his wife. Surprisingly, he still had her support. However, his burdens became too much to carry. He grew depressed that spring. One morning, 
He came home to his wife at 5 a.m. and told her that he needed to be treated for a viral infection. Mrs. Bailey knew this was a cry for help. When she contacted Bailey's colleagues, they also seemed worried. Bailey wasn't the man he'd once been. He'd grown withdrawn, depressive even. One of them even suggested that Bailey undergo deep sleep therapy. Oh, how the tables had turned. On April 4th, 1978, Bailey's friend and colleague gave him an injection and admitted him to Chelmsford under the name Harry Lee. Apparently, Bailey wasn't told where he was, and staff kept his treatment hush-hush. They didn't want it getting out that their own director was in need of psychiatric care. Over the next several weeks, Bailey was administered electroconvulsive therapy with his own Minecta machine and put through deep sleep therapy. He came out on the other end of it weaker than ever, looking like one of the many patients he'd harmed over the years. Perhaps even Bailey himself began to question the effects of his treatment. But as Bailey tried to regain his health, a new threat waited in the wings. A young nurse named Rosa Nicholson had spent years trying to learn more about Bailey's sedation unit after losing one of her friends to his treatment. Now, she'd secured a job right at the heart of it. She knew the facility was harmful. She wanted to get the word out and help shut it down once and for all, saving the patients who were treated there. Rosa spent her days secretly making copies of patient records and hospital files whenever she could manage to get away from her colleagues. And her work paid off once she linked up with the Citizens Commission on Human Rights. This group was founded by a well-known church that opposed psychiatry. And Harry Bailey was an easy target. With patients who had quite literally died on his watch, they figured it was only a matter of time before Bailey's treatments were exposed as harmful. And if they could have a hand in expediting that, all the better. They wrote a letter to the Attorney General for New South Wales, revealing the malpractices at Chelmsford, using the records Rosa had copied as proof. Months later, Physicians began pulling their patients out of Chelmsford's deep sleep ward, worried about the rumors. Chief among them was Dr. Brian Betcher, who convinced other psychiatrists at the hospital to push 56-year-old Bailey and his DST treatment out. By 1979, he had been forced to resign. It was a damning nail in the coffin for Bailey's career. It confirmed the growing opinion that Bailey wasn't to be trusted. Then, in 1980, a 60-minute segment shared the intimate details of a 26-year-old woman who had died at Chelmsford. Around three years later, Bailey was charged with manslaughter for her death. During legal proceedings in November of 1984, Bailey claimed the patient had died from a pulmonary embolism. But multiple people came forward and testified the woman had been given too high a dosage of barbiturates. A year later, in May 1985, the charge was shockingly dropped. The magistrate believed that no jury would be able to find Bailey guilty beyond a reasonable doubt but the media uproar proved insurmountable. At least 24 deaths could be directly linked to Bailey's treatment at that point, and the families of those patients started coming out of the woodwork to collect his recompense. Additionally, the suicide rates of patients who had been discharged after receiving deep sleep therapy skyrocketed. Eventually, as more people came forward, as many as 85 deaths were attributed to Bailey. But it's hard to know the real number because a lot of Bailey's records from Chelmsford were either falsified 
or vanished entirely. In the aftermath, Bailey struggled to cope. By 1981, he had split from his wife and was living with 28-year-old Helen MacArthur. However, their relationship seemed primarily transactional and Bailey became a recluse in his personal life. He turned to whiskey and found little hope in the future. He'd never be able to regain his reputation. Finally, on September 8, 1985, Bailey took a lethal dose of barbiturates. He left a note that read, in part, the forces of madness had won. Even in death, he couldn't take accountability for the suffering he'd caused. Bailey was a very corrupt guy, and he thought very little of the repercussions his treatments had. He barely even tested the soundness of his methods before expressing the utmost confidence in them. His case certainly reinforces the complexities of mental illness and reaffirms that the autobody shop approach to psychiatry isn't the best way to go. The dark irony of Bailey's mental decline and ultimate death is also immensely striking and profound. Talk about a taste of your own medicine. While I was preoccupied at the time establishing my own practice, I do remember how shocking it was to the medical community when this case broke. Harry Bailey used his powers in the worst way, and he'll forever be a cow pie in the field of psychiatry. After Bailey's death, a group of former patients who called themselves the Chelmsford Survivors continued fighting for legal action. Three years later, in 1988, the New South Wales government called for a Royal Commission report investigating the horrors that went on at Chelmsford. Afterwards, deep sleep therapy was effectively banned. But for some, there will never be justice. While it's too late for those who died, the legacy that Harry Bailey's harm leaves behind is an obligation for the medical system to improve patient protections in psychiatric care facilities. To this day, the Chelmsford scandal remains one of the single most vicious instances of medical malpractice and a stark reminder of what can happen when master manipulators are left to reign free. Thanks for listening to Medical Murders, and thanks again to Dr. Kipper for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me, Alistair. For more information, among the many sources we used, we found Deep Sleep, Harry Bailey and the Scandal of Chumpsford by Brian Bromberger and Janet Fife Yeomans extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Medical Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Medical Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brendan Hawkins, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Medical Murders was written by Lauren DeLille, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood. Medical Murders stars Dr. David Kipper and Alastair Murden. Murder.